Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Every Lord's Day, we gather as saints, uh, saints of the Lord, to worship Him in spirit and truth. As Christians, we should constantly remind ourselves that the gathering of the saints is a small foretaste of eternity in Christ, is it not? We will gather with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne and worship to our God. Every Lord's Day gathering should point to that incredible reality. In, uh, in Ephesians three fourteen and 15, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now these verses are rather fascinating to me. I would argue that the Father is intimately aware of and involved with every or each family of believers. And he has brought into existence every family on earth. Therefore, we could surmise that family is important to him. Said another way, your family, your specific family that the Lord has given you, matters to God. How you behave within your family is a direct reflection, again, I would argue, of what you truly believe about, about him. Wives who uh, in, are in sin when they refuse to submit to Christ as, as their authority, when out of their independence they refuse to submit to their husbands. Husbands are in sin and unfit as leaders if they refuse to love their wives and their children, as Christ loves the church. And this, this refusal may be signified, we see it all the time, by outright abuse or even neglect and indifference. If you're a Christian and you are an independent wife or an abusive or neglectful husband, you must recognize that you're not walking in the will of the Lord. You should recognize that you're hurting your family and even more so having a negative impact on the body of Christ. Hence, because of this, you will answer to Christ for your attitudes and actions. Right now, there are, there are forces in our society which are conspiring to destroy the families, our families, and the church. And I promise you, these forces are conspiring to destroy your family and this church. I would argue that as Christians continue to get pushed to the margins of society, the church and the family are the vehicles by which we will survive. Let me say that again. The church and the family are the vehicles by which we will survive. And not only will the church survive and the family survive, I firmly believe this, but we will also thrive. But we can do neither if we don't wake up to the reality of these spiritual forces that are against us. These spiritual forces which are now working in the disobedient to deceive and destroy the church by destroying our families. Therefore, we must understand God's heart for the family and strive to ensure that each of our families, each of our families within the body of Christ, reflects the truth of God's word. But the question is, what does God's word, what does the scriptures teach us about marriage and family? And, what, and, and does this teaching apply and, or, or even work 
in our moder- modern society? Can we apply the teaching, uh, the timeless principles of Scripture in our modern society? Or have we moved beyond this antiquated pattern for family structure? Well, today, as you know, we are starting a new series which we have called Family Matters. I think this series has the potential to transform our families and this church and maybe even have an impact on this community for the gospel. But only if we choose to carefully listen and lovingly apply the wisdom found in this section of Ephesians. J. Gresham Machen says this, The most important Christian education institution is not the pulpit or the school. As important as those institutions are, it is the Christian family. And that institution has, to a very large extent, ceased to do its work. End quote. He said these things almost 100 years ago. Let that sink in. How much more true are they today? Well, we're going to spend, we're planning to spend the next several weeks studying family matters, the matters of the family according to Scripture. And I encourage you to prayerfully attend or to keep up, if you're not here, to keep up with these sermons online. Well, let me pray for the sermon and for the reception this morning, and then I'll read our passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. As Ephesians 3 says, every family derives its name from you. Father, we come to you now as a family of families. The church is made up of families. May we be honoring to you and may we, may you transform us so that we would be church that preserves your word and your truth as we live it out before you before your throne in Christ's name amen let me read Ephesians 5 22 to 24 Paul writes I'll start in 21 Paul writes and be subject to one another in fear of Christ wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now last week I started my sermon introduction by bringing up a series of articles chronicling abuse within the Southern Baptist churches. I want to assure you that I wasn't picking on the Southern Baptists. But we need to recognize, as a body, we need to recognize that they are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Therefore, I would argue that they are an accurate gauge for what is happening to the church in our Western culture. Said another way, what happens to, what happens to the Southern Baptists matters to the rest of us. As such, I would again argue that they are the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for churches such as ours. I would just say that that our canary is not doing so well. As I said in my earlier comments, 
I believe that there are demonic forces which are conspiring to destroy the family and the church in our society. They're going after the family because the family structure threatens the world's totalitarian aspirations. You may think that's a little harsh, but I don't think so. Historically, God's people have always been the main defender of the truth and the main defender of the family. Therefore, to destroy the family, the church must be weakened and destroyed. I think that is what we are witnessing today. The church has been attacked on many fronts. We must recognize that attempts to characterize and denounce men as patriarchal rapists have weakened the church and are destroying our families. We cannot turn a blind eye to attempts in the church, to attempts in the church to do away with scriptural patterns for the family. This has been done in the name of alleged patterns of abuse by the so-called patriarchy that I just mentioned especially, may I say, the white patriarchy. Now, I believe this is what we're witnessing in the Southern Baptist churches. The forces attacking the churches are using real issues, and we have to understand, these are real issues to hit us at our weakest points. These include the abuse of women, racism, and poverty. Now, Scripture addresses each of these problems from the first chapter, but Scripture's answers are far different than the solutions offered by the world. But that's where the trouble lies, does it not? Scripture's answers to these issues are not the same as the world's answers, yet the world's answers are being thrust upon the church. For instance, take poverty. In Leviticus 19, God instructed Israel to lead the gleanings of their harvest for the needy among them. This instruction was also for the care of strangers. He directed them to care for the blind and the deaf. He warned them against partiality because of social status. He commanded them to pay the wages of the hired man promptly. James picks up on these commands in his letter. In James 1.22 he says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude, delude themselves. And in James 1.27, he says, Pure and undefiled, undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here again, we see God's heart for the needy. Jesus himself spoke of, the, of kingdom living when he said this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, there's one glaring truth that you should notice about these commands. You see, God tells his people to do these things. As such, this is not a primarily a function of the government. He commands his church to care for the needy, to fight for the stranger and the immigrant, and to avoid partiality or, said another way in a world, using a worldly term, racism. Beloved, we as a church should hate abuse and racism more than the world hates them because our God is against them. We should not solely, though, look to the state to do the job of caring for the needy and protecting the abused. We should recognize that our nation faces grave challenges regarding these things. 
but we must not fall for the world's answers. Scripture teaches that the best answers, the answers to these problems primarily lie within the family and the church. As such, strong families and churches, strong churches are the building blocks of a stable society. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson introduced his vision for the Great Society and his war on poverty. Johnson's plan included the creation of programs such as Head Start, Food Stamps, Work Study, Medicare, and Medicaid, all of which, as you know, exist today. Some point, some point to the reduction in poverty and liver, living standards for the nation's poor while touting the success of these programs. Personally, personally, I would be considered a model of the success of these programs. My family, when I grew up in Arkansas, received aid from these government sources. We could not have afforded my schooling, but I was, una- was, but I was able to attend college through a combination of government grants, loans, work study, and employment. And I'm thankful for these helps, which gave me an education and a skill in the workforce. For the past 25 years, I've been a taxpayer paying into a system which presumably helps others just like me. But there is a dark side to these programs. In 1960, around 75% of households were married couples, a man and a woman together. By 2010, that percentage had dropped below 50%. It has remained steady since then. Johnson described those programs that he implemented as a hand up, not a hand out. Yet for every person that has truly benefited from them, there have been many others who have taken advantage and continue to do so. State's promotion of an increased welfare dependency has caused women to depend upon the state for welfare and food stamps. These programs were written to help children and young folks rise out of poverty, yet they have encouraged men and women to have children out of wedlock for the benefits. This has enticed men to shirk their duties as husbands and fathers. As such, they can follow their natural tendency uh, to chase women and, and to keep only a nominal connection to their families and their children. Some fathers, multi, uh, some even father multiple children with multiple women for which they bear little to no responsibility. As such, these children are raised by the state. Sadly, raised by the state. And which also educates them and protects them. These, these things are destroying families and entire cultures within our society. And we must, as a church, recognize the destructiveness of these policies. On this past Tuesday, a Columbus, Ohio police officer came upon a scene where a female assailant was attacking another female with a knife in her hand. The officer fired several shots, fatally wounding the attacker. Now, I'm not here to pronounce guilt or innocent on the officer. I pray that justice will be served. But I will say that the destruction of the family was on full display at that, on that Tuesday afternoon. By the way, this happened almost synonymously with the Derek Chauvin verdict, this, this incident. The details are still coming out, but we do know this, that 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant was in foster care at the time of the shooting. We don't know for sure why. I I couldn't find for sure why she was in the foster system, but these cases are generally due, as you know, to a family crisis. In other words, her father and mother were probably unable to care for her, and there there is no immediate family able to take up that slack. Again, 
this points back to a system which incentivizes that behavior. With every generation, every generation that comes around, the problem continues to worsen, does it not? We're at the point where a responding officer is forced, he had nine seconds, I think it was, from the time he stepped out of his car, he had nine seconds until he fired those shots. He's forced to make a split-second decision, which I hope that we all grieve that he had to make. And these scenarios keep playing themselves out over and over and over and over, and I could keep going. What is the connection? What is the connection? What's the destruction of the family? It's the destruction of the family. And if that isn't bad enough, gay marriage has been a vehicle to further erode the biblical pattern for marriage and family. Beginning in the 1950s, faculty and elite universities have pushed, an, pushed anti-biblical thinking on sex and the family. The mainstream media has pushed this narrative to the demise of the family structure, which is bringing our nation literally to its knees. More recently, social media giants such as Facebook have played a significant role in normalizing this new family structure. They've done so through algorithms which have promoted siloed thinking among the masses. Most folks don't even realize they've lost the ability to think critically and are being influenced by an ungodly elite class. Just think about that. Just think about that. These elite influences are bent on influencing unsuspecting folks with their way of thinking. Now, we must recognize that this thinking has been brewing for many years in elite universities, such as Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, and others. These universities have produced lawyers, judges, politicians, and CEOs who possess the same ideology. And we wonder why it's happening. We wonder. Corporations such as Coca-Cola, Amazon, and others have made acceptance of this new normal family structure as part of their corporate structures. These elites have infiltrated Congress, the White House, government departments, and the court system. Sadly, these men and women have also begun to normalize transgenderism, such as that it has become an epidemic among our youth. And I think we'll see why in a moment, but young females have been especially vulnerable to these tragic ideologies. Here's the irony. Did you know that traditional marriage is actually doing pretty well among those who are educated? Those who have obtained at least a bachelor's degree have a greater chance of getting and staying married. They have a greater chance of remaining married than those who have a high school diploma or less. And here's something else that's interesting. The best way out of poverty is to graduate high school, get married, and have kids within marriage. It's proven. It's the best way. High school dropouts who do not marry and have kids out of wedlock are highly likely to live below the stated poverty line. Females are the most negatively negatively affected. The kids are almost certain to live in poverty. Again, we see that it's the poor who suffer with the effects of our government's anti-family policies. Again, government, media, social media, and big corporations are conspiring to push these destructive ideologies to destroy the family. As the church, which is what matters to me, 
In many cases, we've fallen for it. Hook, line, and sinker. These forces of darkness have used these ideologies, and in many cases, they have won. The forces of darkness have also used racism as a a vehicle to change society fundamentally and to attack the church. As Christians, as I said earlier, we should hate racism. But these, the racism has been redefined in radically new ways, which, which go against the doctrine of biblical justice. The Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s resulted in many freedoms for people of color. The Civil Rights Act prohibited discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And Christians, as Christians, we certainly endorse these prohibitions. But beginning in the early 2000s, those in power began to change the, the definition of racism. No longer is it as defined as an attitude at the individual level. That's called racism 1.0. Racism 2.0 points out that society structures, even the church and the family, are inherently racist. Again, we see this attack on the church and the family. As I said, the church should stand firmly against racism, but this new definition of of racism has made the church inherently racist. The church, at least predominantly white churches, are considered to be part of this racist structure. Therefore, members of the so-called white patriarchy are considered to be oppressors, even if they themselves are not outwardly racist or abusive. Therefore, society is being divided between those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. Beloved, that's Marxism. That's Marxism. And one can easily see how accusations of abuse and racism have conspired against the evangelical church. And I would argue that these divisions will inevitably result in totalitarianism driven by these ideologies. Even the Civil Rights Act is being being changed to include, or they're trying to change it to include, discrimination based on sexual orientation. The Equality Act which has been pushed for several years, would effectively update the Civil Rights Act, potentially making it a crime to call the LGBT lifestyle sinful. In this way, all these forces are conspiring to destroy the family and the church. And as a church, we must recognize these ideologies for what they are and respond appropriately. That's why I'm taking 20 minutes to introduce this series In this way, you need to see, you need to understand as the church, you must understand what we are up against. It's more than politics. Yes, politics is driving this, but it's these, it's spiritual forces, it's demonic forces that are coming against the church and the family. And beloved, you are in the crosshairs. And I would be remiss as your pastor not to warn, not to bring it up. We must return to the truths of God's word, and we must courageously live them in the face of this coming storm. We must find shelter from these destructive winds within our families and within our churches. Our day is not the day to shrink back from these challenges. We need to embrace them. We need to embrace the challenges. 
We need to embrace them, recognizing that God's definition for the family and the church is the only answer. We need brave men and brave women who are willing to stand against the spirit of this age. We need women who are unwilling to sacrifice their families at the altar of career success, but want to be, desire to be, loving and submissive wives and loving mothers to their children. We need men who desire to be courageous, who desire to be loving husbands and fathers and are unwilling to sacrifice their wives and their children for a life of chasing fleshly satisfaction. We need parents who will bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and won't blindly sacrifice them on the altar of secular education. We need churches who are fearlessly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, sadly, just yesterday, I saw a quote by Abraham Piper, who is John Piper's son. He sadly has walked away from the faith. In the quote, he berates evangelicalism as narrow-minded. He says this. <coughs> he says, it's a narrow-minded, this is, he's speaking of evangelicalism. It's a narrow-minded worldview. And one of the most destructive and narrow-minded aspects of it is that it, its adherence feels as if they are the entirety of Christianity rather than the tiny sliver of it that they actually are, end quote. It's Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. You know, I don't agree with most of what he says there, of course, but I do agree with one thing, actually. <clears throat> Let's just say it this way. Amid the great wickedness of Cain's offspring, there was always a small remnant. At the flood, God used Noah and his family, eight persons to save all of mankind. He chose Abraham from among the nations, and there were only just a few who went into Egypt. <coughs> Seventy, I believe. Israel was never a great and mighty nation compared to other empires. The Lord used twelve men as the foundation of his church. In our day, God will continue to use the weak to confound the strong. He will use the family. He will use your family and churches just like this one if we are willing to follow him and, uh, and his ways. Now that was a long introduction to Ephesians 5, 22-23. But I hope, I hope that you understand the heart behind it. The heart is to get you to see the importance, the critical nature of, of your family, and of the church. And I'm talking about the true church. And to convince you that God does use the, the small insignificant to make a difference in this world for the gospel. Now last week we studied Ephesians 5.21, which states, and be subject to one another in fear of Christ. According to Paul, we need to reflect our roles clearly. And in order to do so, we need to be in the correct submission. The Lord Jesus has given us differing roles within the body of Christ and within the family. Depending upon our role, we may be called to be an authority or we may be called to submit. Now, here's what we need to understand. These roles may change throughout our lives. 
as I was thinking through it, I was thinking of the, uh, of the prince who may be called by his parents to be in submission to his nanny as he grows up. But as he grows and matures, he becomes her authority. He may, he may grow to be an authority over mighty men. David is an example of this principle. He was the youngest of his siblings, the least of his siblings. And, but he was chosen by the Lord to be the future king of Israel. Even after being anointed by the Lord, the king, he continued to be in subjection to, to Saul before he became actually the king. The supreme example is the Lord Jesus. In Luke 2.52, it says he was in subjection to his parents as he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Therefore, submission is a normal way of life for all of us. At one time or another, we have to be willing to submit. In the same way, most of us will find ourselves in authoritative positions, especially as we grow older. And our response to each of these roles reveals our true character, does it not? The Lord calls us to know our roles and to properly reflect them in each of our relationships. Secondly, as a Christian, and again this is review, as a, as a Christian, we are to have the correct stimulus. Paul says that our motivation for submission is the fear of Christ. In other words, we honor Christ when we submit to one another. But we can never forget the other side of the equation. Those in authority must remember that they will stand before Christ to answer how we rule over others. Therefore, whether you're the one submitting or the one in authority, you must do both in the fear of Christ, the reverence of Christ, honoring Christ. Now we recognize, we should recognize that verse 21 is the final command of the, of the walk of wisdom in, from 515. But it is also the final result of being filled with the Spirit. And 521 also forms the introduction to Paul's treatise regarding the family, which we'll begin to study today. Now in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, Paul implores wives to submit to their own husbands, then he gives three clear motivations for this appeal. Since I took so much time for the introduction and review, we'll only begin to look at this first point. In 522, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. He begins to address the, as he begins to address the family structure, Paul first addresses the wives. The word translated wives could mean wives or women, but in this context it pretty clearly means wives. Now, we should consider why Paul addresses wives first in these instructions. In Colossians 3.18, he also begins with the wives as he addresses the Colossian church. In 3.18, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.1, follows the same pattern. He says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Again, we need to consider why Paul and Peter would place the wives first. Now, I would argue that Peter helps us answer this question. He says this in 3.1, he writes, So that even if any of, them, any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Let's put it this way. If the husband is obediently fulfilling his role as husband and father, then she, should, she is then she is helping as a fellow heir of grace. And if the husband is not fulfilling his duties as husband and father, then she will win him or can win him by obediently following Christ. In both cases, she helps bring about the growth of the children and the stability of the family. 
As such, I would argue that the wives are the key to peace within the family. They're not the leader of the family, but they are pivotal in ensuring an environment of spiritual growth. Paul understood that wives are the key to the family, whether the husband is leading or not. In other words, her role is pivotal to the success of the family. Now, we should recognize that in every organization there are pivotal roles. In elementary school, it could be the kindergarten kindergartner teacher, kindergarten teacher, who sets the children up for success from the beginning. You know, at Disney, it's been shown that the person who dresses up as Mickey and Minnie doesn't have the pivotal role. That It's actually the janitors who keep the park clean who have the pivotal role that make people want to come back to Disney. In the church, it's probably the humble man or woman who goes the extra mile to ensure that the new visitor feels welcome. Or the saint who serves in need that serves someone in need when no one else knows. In the same way, the husbands may be the ones in authority, but it's the wives who hold the key to the spiritual success of the family. Paul reiterates this truth, I would argue, in 1 Timothy 2.15. It says, women, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The Greek word translated here means to be saved preserved safe or unharmed. It could also mean to rescue. So I would, I would say that, that Paul is not talking about spiritual salvation through the bearing of children. He is saying that even though Eve was the one initially deceived, women have the opportunity to be freed from that stain by raising godly children who, will help, who they will help lead back to the Lord. By faithfully teaching their children, they have a unique opportunity because of their close relationship to their children. They have this unique opportunity to have a godly influence on their children's lives. As you know, women tend to spend far more time and have a far more intimate connection with their kids. And this connection gives them the distinct privilege of leading their children and the friends of their children even to faith in Christ. God, godly wives and mothers have an incredible influence over family. This is a preserving influence that is unique to women. And I believe it's the reason which Paul led with an exhortation to the wives. Even those who hold a secular worldview, they, they understand the importance of mothers and grandmothers and aunts, of the women among our families. How many graduating students have you seen specifically write hi, dad, on their hats? They don't. You might see, you might see hi, mom and dad, but generally they lead with who? Mom. Mom. When asked who the most influential person in one's life is, most will say my mother. Many will say that. Even in the direst circumstances, many times it is a grandmother or an aunt who keeps the family together. Women are uniquely positioned to demonstrate genuine faith through the rearing of their children. I wonder how different this culture would be. <laughs> Yea, how different the church would be if our wives fully embraced the roles they've been given. I need to speak directly to you ladies. Do you embrace your role 
Do you understand the importance you have on our families? You know, I, I was thinking, many of you suffer under a, a stigma that wives who fully devote themselves to their family are somehow less than those who undertake a career. I know, I know you hear those things. Perhaps you've even been the recipient of comments such as, what a waste of a great education. What a waste of your life. What a waste of your time. You had so many opportunities in the world to make a difference. I want you to know that Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Scripture teaches the exact opposite. You, if you are committed to your family, if you are committed to your husband, if you're committed to your children, you have the most critical role in the world most critical role in your families, in the church, in our culture. Your job as wife and mother is so much more important than even the most powerful woman, politician, or CEO on the planet. On the planet. As such, I believe that you are the key to us surviving and thriving as Christians are being pushed to the margin. Absolutely. As I said earlier, we need to remember, we must always remember that God will use, He will use His remnant to preserve. This is the way God always works. As I said earlier, Noah and his family were used to save mankind from being wiped completely from the earth. Joseph was used to save the remnant of the Abrahamic family by leading them into Egypt. Ladies, you never know how the Lord might use you in the salvation of your family. He may even use you to raise up men and women who lead us through the coming years as we await for the Lord's return. The battle we face in our culture will not be won on a battlefield. It won't be won on a battlefield. It will be won in the cradle. One in the cradle through the loving diligence of women who are willing to make the sacrifice of love for their children and a sacrifice of love for their husbands. Willingly submitting. These women, these women, the ones who do these things, will raise an army of saints who are mighty in the Lord. And we'll go out and win those battles. Back in Ephesians 5.22, Paul writes, be, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The, this verse borrows the, the verb, be subject or submit, from verse 21. Last week I argued that Paul uses this verb to call for the believer, the wives in this instance, to make a conscious decision to submit in godly ways. This type of submission demonstrates faith in God that He is ultimately in control of your life. It also demonstrates that we understand that He is sovereignly in control of those in authority over us. Fighting for independence demonstrates that we are selfish. In the case of the believing wife, when you submit to your husband, you are demonstrating that you are filled with the Spirit. Now I want you to notice, though, that Paul says, to your own husbands. 
Ladies, again, I need to speak to you. You are not called to submit in that same way to any other man. He is, your husband is the man that the Lord has chosen. He is the one with whom you exchanged vows. Any scriptural vows should include a promise to submit to your husband's leadership and direction. As wives, you must recognize the critical nature of that promise. For this reason, I should specifically speak to each of the ladies who are seeking to be married one day. Your decision to marry a man should be, must be taken with great care. I exhort you, carefully consider the man whom you will marry. In a very real sense, you're giving your life to this man. As a Christian, you should recognize the commitment that you are making to follow him. He will be leading you physically and spiritually. He will be rearing your children with you. Take great care in that decision. In the words of Martin Luther, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage, end quote. That being said, there may be no greater heartache than realizing that the man you've married is not the godly man you need him to be. There may not be no greater heartache, not only for you, but for your children. So what is the first motivation for submitting to your own husband? Well, it is your connection to Christ. It's your connection to Christ. It is your relationship with Christ. Look at the text. Paul says, as to the Lord. The Lord refers to the Lord Jesus as evidenced by in the next two verses. The main question here is, how are we to understand this submission? It could be interpreted that wives are to submit to their husbands because it is fitting the Lord. This view fits with Colossians 3.18. It could mean to submit to your husbands to the same degree as you submit to the Lord. It could even mean that the the wife is to submit to the Lord, making your submission to your husband a training ground for your higher allegiance to Christ. But I don't think the reason, that's the reason why Paul says this. I would argue that the wife's submission to her husband demonstrates her ultimate, ultimate submission and commitment to her Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, your submission to your husband and your submission to Christ are in fact, inseparable. One demonstrates the other. You can't have one without the other. Jesus demonstrates this principle in Matthew 25, 4. He says, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So the point there is, applied to Ephesians 5.22, ladies, As you submit to your husband, you are submitting to Christ. Therefore, submission to your husband is a wonderful picture of your connection to Christ. It's a wonderful picture of your connection to Christ. It's a reality of of your connection to Christ. You could say it that way. Now, next week, we're going to continue. Today, we saw, we began to look at, From 522, we began to look at the first clear motivation for this appeal. 
you sub- submit to your husband because of your connection to Christ. Next week, we're going to look at you should submit because of your comprehension of creation. We see in creation, we see headship, the idea of headship. And we'll look at that closely next week. Third motivation, you should submit because of your consideration of the church. Now, as we close, as we close, I know that what we're saying today is absolutely countercultural. It's countercultural. The spirit of this age is going in a direction. And what you're doing, if you believe these things, is you are absolutely rowing against the tide. It's absolutely what's happening. This teaching is against the spirit of the age. And it's even against the spirit in the church, in many cases. Because we are compromising as a church so that we can do what? Look good in the eyes of of the world. But I'm telling you that, that Scripture, Scripture, if you believe Scripture, if you trust what God says and you live according to His Word, you will not look good in the eyes of the world. And I want you to know that you'll never understand these things outside of an understanding of the Gospel. If you have not turned to Christ in saving faith, everything that I've said today will sound like foolishness to you. If you don't know him and have questions, please come to see me or one of the men after the service. Phil and I and Vey will be available. Please come, come to me. Come to me and ask questions. Let me leave you in the spirit of going against the flow of the world. Let me leave you with James 3, 13 through 18. Paul says that submitting, subject, making yourself subject to one another in the fear of Christ and wives sum, submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord, Paul says that is wisdom. 5.15, that's wisdom. It's wisdom to do so. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Stop right there. The spirit of this age is demonic. The things that you hear hear in this world about how family should be, is demonic. It comes not from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. James goes on to say, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Do we not see? Do we not see disorder where these ideologies are embraced? But then he says this, James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ladies, you have an opportunity 
a very unique opportunity to sow the fruit of righteousness. Sow the fruit of righteousness within your family, within your children. And you watch them. If you do so faithfully, you watch them grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you for your goodness. I specifically pray for this church as we go through this series. It is not outside of my understanding that we may face opposition as we go through this series because this is so countercultural. The spirit of the age hates these truths. They hate, they hate the truth of your word. And yet, Lord, we are called to preach the truth, called to live the truth. And as in so much as we do so, we know that we'll come up against opposition. And that's okay. Because we have your protection as we stand firm on your word. In Christ's name, amen.